Guys, have you ever, um, you ever been caught before? Like caught, like you're doing something you ought not do and you get caught, like you get busted for. Like, so back in the day, I wasn't a pastor, just so you know. And there were times that, like, I deserved to be caught because I was being a knucklehead. And then there were times that, like, it, it was kind of innocent. Like, I, I guess I kind of deserved to be caught. But I didn't mean to be like this one time. This one time, I'd been out with my friends. It was my freshman or my sophomore year of college, and we were playing wolfle ball. Wiffle ball is what you guys play wiffle ball, but it's in the south, and so we wrap the bat up with duct tape, right? And when you wrap it with that silver duct tape, you can just like crush that little white plastic ball. So we were playing some wiffle ball. We've been playing for hours, and like the sun was starting to go down, so we had to call it a game. All the guys were going back, and some of my buddies comes up. This is how it always happened. One of my buddies comes up, and he's like, Billy, I have an idea. Whatever gets ready to come out of his mouth is going to be bad, and I know it's going to be bad, but I'm like bright-eyed. Like, I'm like, let's hear what's your idea. He goes, we should go rappelling. And I'm like, yes, yes, we should. We should do it. So we ran, we came up with this plan. We ran fast as we could back to the room, got all our stuff on, and then we headed to the top of one of the dorms. Now, so back in the day, dorms were not co-ed like they are now, so you had guy dorms and you had girl dorms, and I'm sure it was not my idea but the idea was let's go repelling off the girl dorms. And I was like, no, this is great. Let's go. So we're at the top of the, I don't remember how we got up there, but we were at the top of the dorms. We tied off and everything. And then they looked at me because they knew like, well, it was our idea. So you have to go first. That's how this works. So I'm like, yes, I'll go first. And so I'm on my way down. And those of you who have done the repelling thing before, you know, sometimes when you go repelling, like your balance is a little off and you're kind of chopping the rope doesn't. Other times, it's like silk, right? You just, you launch yourself off the rock face or the girl dorm face, whichever, and you just, you know, just, you just do it just like in the movies, you know, and it feels so good, and that was the time for me. So I was feeling so good about myself. Like, I was smiling from ear to ear, finally got to the ground. I don't know how many stories up we were, but I got to the ground, and I'm unclipping and everything, and all of a sudden, there's a flashlight in my face because it's nighttime. I forgot that detail. It is nighttime by this point as we're repelling off the door. And so this light is in my face. And what I hear is, what are you doing, son? And Because it was the security, the campus security guy. And he's got this flashlight in my face. And I said, the first thing comes to mind. I said, I'm repelling, sir. What are you doing? <laughs> and um, I wasn't trying to be funny, but like my friends up on the top, like they're dying. Like they're crying. The guy who was on belay down here, like he's crying. They're laughing and rolling around the security guard. He wanted my ID. And they looked at me. Just kind of, he kind of smiled a little bit like, I think you're a little bit funny, but not that funny. And he basically said, get down, get your friends down. And don't, next time you're really in trouble. Like you're done if I catch you again. Go back to your room. I never want to see you again. And that was it. How do you respond though? When the evidence is right in front of you, when it's the flashlight and you're busted, like you have messed up because you were repelling, maybe yours was worse. Like, how do you respond? What do you do in that place? How do you get back on track? What does that look like? Again, Merry Christmas, everyone. I'm Billy Creech. I'm the campus pastor here, and we are in a sermon series called Remind Me. This is week number three of this series, and what we're doing is we're following the, the story of family. In fact, it's the family line, the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. Take your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 
chapter 1. Over the past few weeks, here's what's happened. Week number 1, Matthew, he laid out the genealogy in three sets of 14 generations apiece. So you have 14 generations, 14 generations, then 14 generations. The first week, we talked about how broken the family of Jesus really was as we look back at all of these names. And it's a reminder to us that there's room enough for all of us in God's family. It doesn't matter how messed up you think you are. There's room enough in God's family for you. That second week, which was last week, we looked all at the kings in the family, right? It was line after line after line of king after, and what we saw is we saw a line of kings that were extremely rebellious. We saw this line of rebellion. This week, we're going to look at verses 11 through 17, and the big idea is this. In, in the family's failure, God always keeps his promises. In the family's failure, God always keeps his promise. So how do you respond when you don't hit the mark? When you've been repelling and you know you shouldn't do that repelling thing, but you get, how do you respond? Because I think we know that during Christmas you should experience hope and joy and peace. Did you hear joy to the world? Like they went for it today, didn't they? Like everything in them, they went for it. So we know, like the kids told us, there should be joy to the world. We should have joy in our lives. And yet sometimes I think we get caught repelling. And when we do, we're like, I want to have joy. I want to have peace. But I'm not sure how to get to that place. Because right now, I'm kind of in a rough spot. There's a flashlight in my face. And I'm not sure how to get out of this spot. But I want that joy. I want that hope. I want that peace. So how am I supposed to do that? So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at three responses that we can make to God to help get us to that point. And the first response is to realize that you're under God's curse. Look at the Bible, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse number 12. Matthew writes this. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, and I just want to stop. I know in your Bible it lists all the names. I promise I'm going to read every single one of those names. We're going to get there in just a moment. But it says Jeconiah, which to us, our first response is we have to have this realization, this realization that we're under God's judgment. If you weren't with us last week, let me catch you up. There was this king named Jeconiah. Scripture said he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was evil. And so God's curse, God's judgment, I think is a much better word. God's judgment entered the picture. And God said, well, I'm going to let Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, judge you. The wall around Jerusalem was destroyed. The best and the brightest, they were exiled, meaning they were taken prisoner and they were shipped off to another. There was so much more I didn't share with you though. Jeremiah, you'll want to write this down. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24 through 27, God promises Jeconiah that he will be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, by Babylon, because he's done what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it says that he will hurl you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. God looks at Jeconiah and says, I'm going to hurl you. I'm going I'm to thrust you into another country, and you don't get to come back to Israel. There's the place that you will die. And he said more, look at verse 30. In verse 30, it says, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. And he doesn't mean, like Jeconiah, you're not going to be able to have any kids, like that just ended that. I'm just going to fix it. You won't have kids. That's not what he says because if you keep reading, it says this. A man who shall not succeed in his days for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Let me say that again. 
God looks at Jeconiah and says, because of your evilness, because of how disgustingly evil you are, I'm going to kick you out of this country. I'm going to send you to another country where you're going to be a prisoner, and you're going to die there. Not only that, but just so you know, none of your offspring will sit on the throne. None of your offspring will be king. Israel at that point had a mountain of worry. Do you understand why? Like a mountain of worry. Because God made a promise to Abraham. Do you remember the promise to Abraham? Abraham, you're going to have kids. Well, I don't have any kids. I'm old. I know, but you're going to have so many kids. They're going to be too numerous to count. You're going to have that many kids. And then he goes to David. David, I'm going to make you a promise. There's going to be a son in your family. One of your sons, 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 sons. There's going to be a son from the house of David, and he will rule forever. He will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There will be one coming who will reign forever. David, that's the promise I'm making to you. And they've been waiting for that. But here we are with Jeconiah. Jeconiah is a part of King David's line. And all of a sudden, God is saying, hey, Jeconiah, just so you know, none of your kids will sit on the throne. Do you see where the worry would come from? All of a sudden, the people are saying, but God, you had this promise. What, what are we supposed to do with this? Because there's this, there's this promise. Have, have you ever played sports like back in high school? Did you play sports? Anyone like you? All right, some. And probably the rest of you probably did something like marching band or dance or theater. You had other things that you would do. And I think all of them, they kind of have some, some commonalities. So high school football, the way it would work, we would play our games on Friday nights. Then on Saturdays, we would have film. Like, you probably did something similar, right? Um, in film, we would normally watch two games every single time. We'd watch the one we just played the night before. So we'd watch Friday night's game, and essentially what we're doing, we're looking at ourselves. How did I do? Where did I miss the block? Where did I do a great job? Where did I get a little sticker for my helmet? Because that was awesome. You know, what, let, let's look at that. And then we would watch the game for the team we're getting ready to play. But we weren't really watching. I mean, we kind of would watch, like, look how good that guy is. Like, you're going to have to really tackle him, whatever. But more, more often than not, what we were watching is, let's look at the mistakes the other team made. And let's not make those same mistakes. Let's watch the mistakes the other team made that played the guys we're getting ready to play. And let's not make some of those same mistakes. Can I just let you know, that's why we read about Jeconiah. We want to read his story so that we look and we say, let's not do that. Let's not bring ourselves under God's judgment by living like Jeconiah lived. Like, let, let's be in agreement with that. And yet, let me just, before I get into Jeconiah's kids and go and have that conversation with you, let me just say that I think so oftentimes that's exactly what we do. What we do is we, first of all, we blame shift. We'll do things and you probably don't do this, but you've seen people do this. We'll blame God. What we'll do is we'll drive 70 miles an hour when the little sign says you can only drive 55 miles an hour. Then you see the lights in your mirror, and the guy gives you a ticket. And then you get mad, and you say, why did God let that happen? Why? God didn't drive your car, just so we're clear. He did not push on the gas pedal. You did that. Like, you did that. But isn't that what we do all the time? God, I can't believe you let this happen or you let that happen. And I'm just going to say, not always, but often, it's natural consequences. We did it. We made the, I made the choice to get up on top of that dorm and go rappelling off. There was a reason that flashlight was in my face, right? It was natural consequences. I did it. They got Jesus. And they said, Jesus, 
I want to know what's the greatest of all the commands, of all the law. You know what Jesus said? There's two. Love the Lord your God. We don't do that very well. Church, you know what we do is we will place our careers above God. We will place our families above God. We will place our culture above God. We are constantly creating idols in our lives. And then he said the second like it, love your neighbors yourself. We stink at that. We're awful at it. We are. Like, I don't even want to talk about my neighbor yet because we have such toxic environments in our homes. If you can't love the people you're supposed to love, how are you going to love your neighbor? Right? Look at our politics. Look at, look at, so all of a sudden, when we're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves, we can't even love people we're supposed to love. People that we say with our mouth, I love you, and you know everything about them. We have toxic environments there. Our workplaces are a mess, right? And so all of a sudden, the reason I mention that, we look at Jack and I, and we read this, and we say, I don't want to be like him, but I want to point out we're exactly like him. We are people who have done what is evil in the eyes of God. Jesus told us in a crystal clear manner what we're called to. And we struggle with it. I tell you that for a reason, because when you realize that, yes, I'm in the same boat as Jack and I, when you realize that, you're in a very good spot. You're in a very good spot because when you understand the brokenness and the rebellion that we have as a people, you can then understand that we need a savior. We need a hero. We need a rescuer. And that brings us to point number two. Point number two is we need to recognize that the best hero you have can't redeem you. And when you think of the best of the best of the best heroes you can come up with, they can't rescue you. Let's look at this family line now, verse 12. The Bible says this. It says, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel was the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakum, Eliakum, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliahud, Eliahud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob. So this curse, just so we're clear, this curse was not you're never going to have kids. The curse was, the judgment was, your kids won't sit on the throne. Right? That, that's what the judgment was. Your kids will not sit on the throne. And yet, here's where all of a sudden we got to slow down. Some of you, you're kind of like, nerds when it comes to the Bible, like you're really geeky and you like the details and you like, and so you're really going to be fired up about this. You're going to like this because here's what it says. It says, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel. And I'm going to stop right there because Zerubbabel is famous. I'll talk more about him in a second. Like he's kind of a big deal. He really is. And so I do want to talk about him, but like he led, he was king. And so that's where we're going. Wait a second. That doesn't line up with what Jeremiah said. That doesn't line up with the prophecy that there's going to be judgment and that his, his children would not sit on the throne. So does that mean that God said, oh, I changed my mind? Is that what happened? And the answer is no. No, that's not what happened. Now, historians, theologians come up with really two different responses, and that's where some of you who are like into this, like you're going you're gonna to love this. Here's the two explanations. I'm going to give you both explanations, and I'll let you dig deeper this week to figure out, well, here's what I think and why. So I'm going to give you both explanations. The first explanation 
is that Jeconiah is not Jeconiah. That's the first explanation, that this would be like Jeconiah's nephew, that the one that the judgment was against is different than the one that came back. Let me say it like this. I have two sons. Ian is my oldest, and then Gabe is my youngest. Ian and Gabe. It'd be like if Ian did something really, really bad, but Gabe had a son and named his son Ian, which he's not going to, just so we're clear. Like he, it, it's not going to happen. Gabe's not going to name his kid Ian, but let's say he did. Now I've got Ian 1 and Ian 2, right? I have Ian, the uncle, and Ian, the nephew. So there are some theologians that would say, no, this Jeconiah is the nephew, right? That's what's going on here. So still the line of David, but this is the nephew, not the same guy. This is like his brother had a kid, and then his kid continued on. Same name, different guy. That's what one group would say. Another group would say, no, write this down, First Chronicles 3.19, Another group would say 1 Chronicles 3.19 is the answer because it says that Zerubbabel isn't listed as a son of Shatiel at all. In fact, he's listed as a son of the brother of Shatiel, which is Padiah. And so Zerubbabel technically is the nephew of. Do you see that? So it would be like we talked about before in the past few weeks. If your brother dies and you're the next older brother, you would marry his widow and kind of adopt his kids so that that family line could continue. Now, you, you physically did not, but yet you now are the father of these kids. Two different options. Again, those of you who are like, oh, this is great. I love this. Awesome. For everyone else, let me just say this. This is important. The big truth here is you need to understand the fact that God does keep his promises. God always keeps his promises. And there is one from the line of David who is coming. And just because of the sin of this man, just because of the sin of this king does not stop God's promise to David. So Zerubbabel comes along and let me tell you, this is probably the greatest king most of you have never studied or heard of. Like this is the guy. If you go to Haggai, Haggai is going to talk about how he was viewed as a Messiah in his day. They saw Zerubbabel come up and they thought, this is it. This is the hero we've been waiting for. He, he loves the Lord. He is so kind and gentle to people. People honestly looked at him and thought, finally, the rescuer, the savior has come. We read Matthew 1 though. And what do we read? There's just a whole list of names after him, Right? We, we read like he's just a guy. He's just a guy in the genealogy, and there's a lot more guys to come. That's what we read. And the point for us is so clear. Our heroes can't save us. He was a good guy. He was a noble guy. The Lord had anointed him and was doing a work in and through him, but he was not the Messiah. He was not the rescuer. So where do you go when the light's in your face? And you've been repelling or something much, much worse. Like, what, what do you do in that spot? How do you rebound? Because here's what I think. I think we turn to all kinds of places for heroes. I think we will turn to our 401ks and just try to build it bigger. I think we'll turn to books. Girl, just wash your face. Like, you just need to, you need to just go for it, and you're going to be your own savior. And we, we read, man, it sounds so encouraging at first until you realize, like, it's not quite lining up. I think we turn to our politicians. They can't fix the potholes, but they're going to save us, right? 
They're going to rescue us. They're going to fix everything. They never do. 250 years worth of government history in America. They still haven't figured it all out. They're not going to rescue us. There can be some good, good men doing some great, great things. They're not our savior. They're not our rescuer. They're not meant to be. Your pastor, your preacher cannot rescue you. Cannot save you. Every single hero you can come up with in your life. It doesn't matter. Athlete, actor. It doesn't matter. Politician, preacher. Every single one of them should be doing one thing, and that's pointing the way to the Savior. That's what every single hero that we try to build in our lives, that's what every single one of them should be doing. Pointing the way to the Messiah. That's what they should be doing, which brings up the final point, and I've been waiting for this one. Rejoice. And God's fulfilled promise to you. Rejoice in God's fulfilled promise. Let's finish the genealogy in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 Generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. We did it. Abraham to Jesus. There it is. Like we worked our way through it. And, and I love this detail. Look real close again. It says, And Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. If you look at biologically, who the parent, what biologically it points out that Mary is. The parent, legally, Joseph is the father. Legally, Joseph's the father. And this is part of the evidence of the virgin birth right here. Legally, Joseph is the father, but biologically, Mary is the parent here. Now, if this was a song, if this was a song right about this point, the story would be just coming to this crescendo, right? Every, every piece of music you ever listen to, like it's got dynamic to it, that highest part of that song, that's what would be going on right now because there's a title given to Jesus. Did you see it? With Jesus, it said, Christ. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, and finally, what we've been waiting for the whole time, Christ, the Savior, the rescuer, the Messiah. Finally, he's come. And it changes everything. And again, for those nerdy ones here, this is pretty awesome. 14, 14, 14. You're going to really like this. David's name. In Hebrew, words will have numerical values. David has a numerical value of 14. And this is just kind of Scripture's funny way of pointing out like the perfection of God fulfilling his promise to David. 14, 14. God's way of screaming, you needed a savior. You needed a rescue. And everything changes when we realize that. When we realize we are in need of a savior. When we realize the brokenness of where we are. When we realize our heroes can't do it. Our heroes were never intended to do it. And we realize that all of this has happened because God has fulfilled a promise. Isn't that beautiful? Reminds me of a story. I want to end uh, with this. I, I heard this back in the day. And in Oklahoma, which is where I'm from, pretty much anything north of Oklahoma is cold in the winter. Like, and so Kansas, Kansas is the only thing immediately to the north of Oklahoma. Like it's, I mean, Missouri is kind of north and over here, north and east. But Kansas is like right there, like right above. So if you want to talk about someplace that's cold in Oklahoma, we say, you know, in Kansas during the winter. Well, as Michiganders, I guess we look and we're like, 
Alaska? I don't know, Amy, help me out saying, Alaska is north of us, Canada's north of us, the Arctic is north of us, and so I guess, okay, you could go to the Arctic Circle, and that would be colder than Michigan, but we're kind of, anyway, that doesn't even matter. So here's how the story goes. The story goes that there was a farmer in Kansas, and it was the middle of winter. You guys can picture this, right? He's got a field out behind him where maybe corn had been growing, had been chopped off, so the stalks are kind of, you're picturing this, right? It's cold. It's a gray, really cold day, and that farmer, he's sitting there drinking his cup of coffee. The fire's going in the corner. It's just perfect morning, right? All of a sudden, he hears. He kind of looks up, and what he sees is a sparrow. Like, we call them barn swallows down in Oklahoma, right? Barn swallows. But same thing, right? A little bird. There's a little bird and then a whole bunch of more little birds, and they just keep running into the window again and again, trying to get away from the cold because it's bitter cold outside. And they're trying to get away from that cold, so they just keep running into the glass one after another after another. Well, he, as a farmer, he cares about animals. He doesn't want this bird just to freeze to death. So he goes out to his barn. You see the big red barn in your mind? Like some of you, you might have a big red barn. But anyway, he goes out to his big red barn, and he, he opens up the doors, and he steps back. Like they're all just going to fly right in, but they don't fly right in. So he takes some crackers and he smushes up the crackers real good, right? And he puts them right there inside the barn thinking they'll sniff them out. I don't know what he's thinking, but like that the birds are going to come and get the crackers, but they don't. So he starts this trail, right? Smushing up more crackers, making a little trail to go into the barn. And they just sit in the tree and watch him. Like they're just kind of watching him from the tree, but they're, they're keeping their distance. And he's like, I've, I've got to get their attention. So he smushes up some crackers. He stands under the tree, throws the crackers up in the air. When he does, poof, you know, the birds just, they, they split. They're out. He freaked them out. That was just too close and too much. So he goes back in the house, picks up his coffee, starts to sip his coffee again. And thought, well, I tried. I'll leave the barn door open for a little bit and see if, you know, it's going to happen though, right? doesn't take long. And he hears it again. One after another, after another. And all he can think to himself is, I wish, I wish just for a few moments I could turn myself into one of those birds. And then I could tell him, hey, just follow me. I'll take you to safety. It's right there. Don't you see it? My friends, that's Christmas. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus left the throne room of heaven and came to earth as an infant baby. He gave up all his authority. He gave up all his power. He came fully God and fully man. Emmanuel, God with us. And he came with a message. His message was, follow me. I'll show you the way to salvation. Jesus is the salvation. And so maybe if you're in that place of being caught repelling with the light in your face, thinking, I don't know the way back to joy and hope and peace. I wish I had whatever it is those kids had as they sang with so much joy this morning. I wish I had that. Yeah, that's why Jesus came in the first place. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your holy word. We thank you for the genealogy 
that so clearly points us to the rescuer, the Messiah, to Jesus. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe have forgotten truth just a little bit. We've allowed idols in our lives to pop up and start to take precedence over you. Lord, forgive us for those places where we haven't loved our neighbors well, where we haven't loved those within our home well. Continue to show us what it means to live with grace and with hope and with truth. Lord, we thank you for a Savior. We thank you for a Savior who would come as a tiny baby to point the way to salvation. Continue to prepare our hearts for the true celebration of Christmas this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Church, at this time, I want you to, um, to stand so that we can continue to worship together.